I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to Formula for Success. I'm David Colfard and, well, again, not quite alongside me, but very much in my face on my computer screen because he's still in South Africa. It's Eddie Jordan. God, I'm never going to leave here. It's just amazing. I've had amazing weather. Uh, Been in the Kruger game park and saw the most incredible animals, David. Just unbelievable. And um, it's just a great experience to come here to see nature in its finest form. And um, I'm lucky to be able to be here. So happy to be speaking to you. I'm very happy for you. Pardon? I'm very happy for you. But, you know, as far as I'm concerned, the thought of being in the back of a Land Rover or some other vehicle, dusty and dirty, waiting to see a couple of rhinos humping, You know, that's why David Attenborough is revered. And in high definition, I can see all of nature's finest without having to leave the comfort of my sofa. You're a young cub and um, you've got a a wonderful, beautiful new partner. So why would you need to go to the the game park? You're probably your apartment is a game park in itself. So um, let's move on, David. Well, that is a very, a very good point to move on. Well, look, sadly, we don't have any special guests this week other than yourself. Yeah. Uh, but I think it's, uh, we can use this time in this podcast to go down memory lane and have a chat about our favourite rivalries. Uh, and it can be anyone you want. So there's many great periods in Formula One. And if I look at my own time, I was a bit too young to really remember the the sort of louder hunt era. You know, I guess it was early 80s when I really started to follow Formula One. So it was sort of P.K. Mansell, Senna, uh, Prost, of course. So if I was going to go and pick a rivalry, which I'd like to talk about, I'd say Prost-Senna. And having worked with them both as a test driver at Williams, then I got to experience their their different working ways and their personalities and two fantastically fast race drivers. But before I go into talking about why, um, you know, why I enjoyed their their rivalry and, and the different way of working... Which which era would you go for? Is it a time when you were running a team or is it before? Well, um, you skipped over the, the the Hunt Louder. I mean, that was quite spectacular. And of course, it was a result of a great movie. And uh, a lot of people saw that and encouraged people to come and watch Formula One uh, long before Liberty came on the scene. Um, but so they were two 
absolute megastars. And um, if I was to single out one person who helped me in in making the, the right decision, it was Nicky Lauda. So uh, I, I was a no-hoper, so to speak, but I was at the back of the, the grid when it came to the, the drivers at the Marlborough World Championship team. But it was led by, by James and uh, Nicky then came. And of course, uh, Prost arrived at Marlborough. So it was Nicky who gave me the encouragement to go and start and run a team. So... I've always held him in the very highest regard in my estimation. So I, I do remember that. However, I, I do feel that it probably gets un- swept under the carpet somewhat. I think the Lewis and the Nico situation, when you think Nico was runner-up in the championship twice to Lewis and then for him to just that steely way that his dad did, who had been a teammate with mine, Keki Rosberg. So Keki's son... Nico came and won that championship. And that would be the, the particular era that I will talk about. But perhaps back to your situation, which was the, the, the Prost-Senna situation. Okay. Well, uh, yeah, sitting as a fan, watching Formula One, listening to Murray Walker, the late great, of course, and James Hunt, uh, who uh, I was fortunate enough to, to meet and spend time with both of them. But they were the voices that connected me to this amazing world of Formula One. So... That, that era, uh, especially the McLaren period, but it extended on to when Prost was at Ferrari, they really had a racing dislike for each other, which I think uh, it should be noted became friendship and, and respect when they all came to its, its conclusion. And I think why I find it fascinating in that situation is that when you battle someone so hard and you study their performance so closely, and in the case of being in the same team, you get to see how they apply their throttle, how they apply brake steering. You, you see their tells. It's almost like poker players when you set opposite each other in the engineering debrief. You get to know so much about your rival that they almost become like family um, and and not all family gets along, of course. Um, but I think that that's a good way of of explaining the knowledge you have of them is so deep that it's very difficult not to have a bond when that competition ends. And you see it with boxers, don't you? you know, directly after a boxing match, you know, the, the hype and the build-up is they're hating each other. And then when the fight's over, they're hugging and kissing and crediting each other for how, how strong and how committed they were. So what I think was fascinating, uh, Prost took advantage of his size for a lot of his victories in Formula One because he was lighter, he was smaller, in an era when packaging the driver was complicated. And he would use that as part of his negotiation with teams to say, look, I'm 15, 20 kilograms lighter, 10 kilograms as an average advantage would give you about three tenths of a second less each lap, as, as you know. And therefore, that was very potent when he was teammates alongside Senna, when he was alongside uh, Nigel Mansell at Ferrari, I think he was like half a second in the bag even before they went on track, which really highlights how amazing Nigel was as a driver when he was able to compete with Prost. But um, yeah, so Prost took advantage of that in the early days, but then when that was then made part of the regulations that the driver weight would be included to a certain level, he then took advantage to win that last title with Williams alongside Damon Hill. So there was no question his talent was, was there. They nicknamed him the Professor. He was a very thoughtful driver. And when I worked with him as a test driver at Williams, he he was very efficient in the amount of laps he would do, you know, understanding that every lap was a risk in those days. So he wouldn't do a lot of mileage, but he would really 
analyze the data and share that with the engineers very closely. Ayrton, on the other hand, was someone who would do more laps. He was very thoughtful, very engaged with the entire team in terms of understanding how all of these people serve him, to even to the point where the very first time I tested alongside Ayrton, uh, he'd already tested three days in Estoril. I came in on the fourth day uh, on the understanding that I'd be in the car and he was there already. So I thought, okay, he wants to do an extra day. But actually he was just there to put the headset on and listen to my feedback to understand whether I was someone that he felt he could trust to be doing the the donkey work, doing the lion's share of the testing. And I think that a large part of why I got the nod, uh, sadly after he passed away, was that he'd expressed to Frank Williams, and I know uh, he told his manager, Julian Jacobi, who looks after Checo Perez and other drivers today, that he felt I had potential and he felt that I deserved to be in Formula One uh, at some point in the future. Of course, he would never imagine that it was going to be through his own passing that that would give me my opportunity. But I think that having been a fan watching them and then being a fan as their test driver, that's why I, I really think that era of them going wheel to wheel was a f- absolute rivalry of likes that we of like no other rivalry we've seen in Formula One. Um, they mustn't go um, on your conclusions that you've just had, and I understand exactly. But Alan Prost, who we know, I'm sure you, I think you were there today. We all cycled with him up the Col de Madon, which is a hell of a climb, um, where all the top pros um, have to cycle at a certain speed to, to for them to realise that Tour de France is their place that they should be. Um, but I remember him coming down the hill a couple of miles, putting his arm around me and shooing me up the hill. He was that good. And then when we got down to uh, whatever it is, La Turby for the usual coffee, um, he went back up again. I mean, honestly, this is, people don't realise at the age of whatever he was then, 55, 57, he is a phenomenon. Alan Prost, never underestimate. He did um, an event at the Tour de France and he finished, outside the actual tour, he, he had the third fastest time on the exact same stage. It's just ridiculous how how committed he is. But anyway, moving on, um, because... Um, oh, just one other thing in Prost's favour, and that is, with all the in-house fighting and the, the rivalry that there was there, Prost insisted, despite the people of Sao Paulo not wanting to turn up for the funeral, but he did. And he wanted her, and actually he was one of, uh, if you like, the bearers of the coffin of, of um, Ayrton's uh, funeral and funeral of all the family. And uh, it was the whole of Brazil had stopped for this um, because it was like a, an icon. It was like Pele. It was just they were the two symbols that the whole of um, South America, but in particular Brazil, had. And um, well done to Prost because he put everything to one side and he said, look, he was my rival in racing, but he's my friend in life and we've just lost him. And uh, well done, Alan. I'll never forget you for that. It's brilliant. Yeah. No, absolutely. It was pretty incredible. So then, then coming back to the era that really, or the rivalry that you, you know, what was the one that tickled? You mentioned Nicky Lauda as someone that helped you be inspired to become a team owner in Formula One. But what was the point where you were watching Formula One? So, you're, you know, you, before you were racing or when you were racing, who were the guys you looked and thought, wow, what a rivalry? He's not that much 
uh, older than me, and that's John Watson. Um, John Watson being Irish, he came from, you know, racing in Ireland in Mondello and people didn't give him much of a chance, but he was able to came in under the Brabham era and he won some big Formula 2 races and drove for, for Bernie. And uh, he, at that stage, from time to time, there was a third car uh, from the same team in a race and non-championship races in Brands Hatch. People, I'm sure, of my age will remember all of those days. And um, then eventually drove for the Marlborough team, uh, sat alongside Prost, and we've talked about it. And, and he, he he was a, a great person. And uh, he was the person that I went to Silverstone to see. And, you know, the big crash with the Adamage and uh, Jody Schechter, who indeed is a, a neighbour of mine here in, in Cape Town. And um, so... Uh, they were the era. I, I, I'm much older than you, David, so therefore the, the things that I clung on to and brought me into Formula One was that era, which uh, obviously James Hunt was part of it, but James was not on similar age, nor Nicky, in fact, uh, to me. So I was a late starter, um, but they inspired me to come and have a play and see what was going on. So you mentioned a couple of guys there, actually, we should try and get on the podcast. Um, uh, Jody Schechter, uh, who you mentioned uh, used to be your neighbour in Monaco, is now your neighbour in in South Africa, uh, and uh, John Watson. John is uh, you know a, a brilliant broadcaster, not shy of sharing his opinion, and I'm sure it would be very good. Well, you and I can actually go and have a coffee because John takes over. Make sure that he's the best talker. <laughs> God Almighty, he's fantastic. Yeah, well, the gift of the gab. That's what the Irish have. Now here's another little trivia, Jody Schechter. One night when we were all sharing an apartment, he said to me, EJ, you know the guys. Um, I'm interested in moving out of Monaco. Uh, do you know anyone for it? And as it has happened, the great Lewis Hamilton is now the um, the owner and lives and uh, or renter. He lives in the Rockabella, exactly same apartment that Jody had. So it's a small world. It is a small world. But actually, before he took that, I remember going to look at that apartment and Jody's, uh, Jody was still the tenant. And uh, I was like, okay, you know, this I could be happy in this apartment. And he said, yeah, but you, you've got to buy the furniture. And I look at this furniture and I, I already had all my own furniture. And I went, I don't need the furniture, Jody. He said, well, you've got to buy the furniture if you're going to rent the apartment. I said, well, I tell you what, I'll buy a skip, but I'll pay for a skip and you can put all the furniture in the skip. Uh, but I there bet was he a, wasn't happy with that. Well, there was one picture of him sitting in the Ferrari that he, he won the World Championship and it was with the bodywork off and his big arms draped on the side pods. I said, but I'll, I'll buy that picture. And he was like, picture's not for sale you either take the furniture or you're not getting the apartment. I said, well, in that case, I'm going to have to pass on the apartment. <laughs> so I never, took, I never took that apartment. I didn't want his bloody furniture. Jody is not shy when it comes to a deal. He's a bit like all of us, I suppose. He learned it in Formula One. but um, I did get my own back, though. I did get my own back on because when we did the Top Gear event in South Africa, I remember in, uh, at the Kailami circuit, and he drove the Red Bull car, actually, which was fantastic to see. Uh, he jumped in and did a couple of laps. And you had your colleagues there from Top Gear, you know, Jeremy Clarkson and and the team, James May. Actually, I've got his book sitting on my uh, desk here. Very funny. Um, and uh, not to uh, forget Hammond, but I don't have his book. Uh, so we were all down there to do the event. And uh, Jody, fantastically fast racing driver, great businessman, and he always had a keen eye for um, the, the, the fairer sex. And 
my my ex was in the corner of the room and I remember I'm sort of, he didn't know who she was and he had an eye for her. He would sort of, who's that? And I went, oh, I've got to tell you, Jodie, she, she's been asking to meet you. This, I wound them up into the... You know, was, that wouldn't have been was a real a real interest, exactly. And you could see his chest coming out and his shoulders going back. And then the disappointment when he found out it was my wife at the time. But I just, I hadn't forgiven him for that furniture story in Monaco. So I had to have a wee, a wee wind up of him. So you can remind him of that maybe when his wife's not there. <laughs> Look, the problem is that we live in Clifton and he is virtually on the beach. Um, but I don't know what is... His head, he's into music. As you know, he runs Carfest. That operates out of his farm in the UK. Um, and With Chris Evans. He, he, he turns the music up so loud. He has these massive speakers. So the whole of the Clifton Beach can hear it. They don't need a DJ. They don't need radios. They don't need anything. That They've got exactly... He, he, he's quite special, isn't he, old Jody? He, he's a wild character. Yeah, yes, indeed, and a great champion. So my special era is, um, you know, we'd seen how great Lewis had uh, had come up through the ranks at that stage and he was very young and, and winning the race. But um, what stands out for me, because I knew his father really, really well and I drove one of his father's cars, which was uh, Keki Rosberg. And um, Nico was a very astute kind of guy and I don't know if you see him as often as I do, but virtually every morning he brings his kids to school in Monaco, so I'd see him at about half seven or quarter to eight as I was going out to cycle. He'd be bringing his kids to school. He's the most unbelievable father for those girls. And um, so what struck me was he wins the world championship. And as you well know, David, you really coin it and you cash in on that world championship the following year in terms of... I never won the world championship, so I don't uh, know. Well, that's what they did. And um, Nico walked away. He did everything that he wanted to do. And... I think he's very smart. He realised that he'd put everything into beating Lewis and he wasn't going to do it again or he didn't want to have to bother to try to do it again. He set out what he wanted to do. Second, second, first. I mean, phenomenal. And he is a major, major part of Mercedes. He looks well. He always dresses immaculately. He's wonderful dress sense um, and a wonderful father. And I'd have to say that that particular era um, the way he tackled um, the skill and the might, and we all know how great Lewis was at that particular era. Um, for for Nico to do that, I think, was immense, and I think he must have had great willpower, great confidence, great belief in himself to actually get himself up to beat Lewis in that same team and the same car. Yeah, well, I won't disagree with any of that. I will bring to the table, though, he did spin me around at my last Grand Prix in Brazil uh, in, in the Senna S's. And then as I'm sitting there watching the field drive past me, his teammate Nakajima then crashed into me and I was out. So I did, I did feel a little bit aggrieved and I went to see him afterwards and he, he didn't really, you know, he wasn't particularly owning anything for the fact that he spun me around. So we, we had a bit of history there. And then I was actually talking with, uh, with Max Verstappen and his father, Jos uh, Abu Dhabi at the weekend. And for whatever reason, Nico came up in conversation where there was a flight back from Japan and a bunch of us were on that flight via Dubai. Charles Leclerc, Carlos Sainz was going from Dubai to Madrid, Max, myself, and I'm, I forget who else. But then it was a group of us all flying back after this, the race. And we get to Nice. And as we're just waiting for our baggage, Nico said to me, hey, DC, 
by the way, remember, everything we discussed is off the record. And it touched a nerve <laughs> because I don't know, I don't know what he thought I was as an ex-driver, but he, he obviously thought that uh, as, a, as a cunt driver that I was some kind of tabloid journalist and I was sneaking away all these stories we'd been sharing. And I don't remember him actually sharing anything interesting <laughs> at all um, because as a sort of quiet man away from the racetrack, uh, I think I have a much more colourful past. So I was probably bringing a lot more stories to the table. And anyway, it touched a nerve and my neck changed colour. And I flipped my chips is the expression we would have. And uh, Max was recalling the fact that everyone just stood there in silence as I go off on one at Nico, uh, giving it, and he's going, well, I don't understand. And I'm like, well, that's the problem, Nico. You don't understand. So anyway, as, as I'm sure Nico will, will be aware of this, this segment of the podcast, um, uh, we, we've you know moved on from that point. Uh, and he did borrow my 280SL Mercedes for his wedding. Uh, which I was very happy for him to uh, to do so. Uh, he has asked if he can borrow a kilt for a Scottish wedding that he's going to, which I'm, you know, I've got several. I'm very happy to lend him a kilt. So we've moved on from some difficult moments. But I think it's fair to recognise that Nico sometimes sees things a bit differently to the majority. That doesn't make him a bad person. He was a brilliant champion, of course, and unbelievable what he did alongside Lewis. But I think he's matured into his life in retirement in a way that maybe when you're so blinkered as a, as a driver and coming up as a son of a world champion and alongside Lewis for so many years and then finally overcoming it. He's earned his stripes. I've got tremendous respect for uh, his championship and what he achieved. And I think he's matured into life. David, I think that you need to enlarge on those little stories because a couple of occasions, I happened to be on the plane when we were doing some of those shows together. And um, I, I think you brought this up and I, I think you should clarify the situation. What state was your mind in? Or indeed, Jesus, do you remember Adrian Sutil? Good Lord. Um, he was he was wild, wasn't he, on that plane? And then... Um, I think Jos was with us and uh, Max, of course, but um, it was at Max's plane. I don't know whether it was or not, but anyway, we all had great fun. But what goes on those planes should stay on planes. I, I agree with Nico. Let's, let's move on uh, to some questions from our amazing listeners, it has to be said. Uh, the first one is from uh, Jonathan Wilkes, uh, and he goes, guys, what do you think is the single greatest invention or rule change that F1 has ever produced. It could be safety, it could be rules, it could be, you know, something to do with the construction of the philosophy. So I'm going to jump in first, just in case EJ is thinking the same. But uh, there's a few things that we can quote into industry and into the general public that things that, you know, race it on Sunday and then you can develop it and then sell it uh, later on. Carbon fibre, you know, has been developed largely through motor racing, traction control, turbocharged engines, all of these things, supercharged engines in the early stages. I think that the quest for speed and performance is absolutely what goes hand in glove as uh, of some of the greatest inventions that have come out of motor racing, out of Formula One, and have made their way into everyday life. Uh, EJ, have you got anything particular you want to hang your hat on? I remember, oh... 
The very early days, 1982, Gary Anderson was the first person to put a carbon top on his Anson car and soon followed that that was the trend. And most people were hurt when these uh, uh, monocoques came in on top of them in a race. The great thing, and we've seen some horrific accidents, our our great buddy Mark Webber will uh, be a perfect example to see what happened in Valencia to that car um, and and to walk away. Um, Carbon has been a huge success in terms of safety and that's one of the things that I'm really keen on I think the hands device was very important the halo I really dislike I I, I really would hope that we could come up with something a little bit more uh, appealing and more safety conscious than what that is but that's for for a future Um, and um I always like to see things that happen in Formula One that actually move down the chain into normal road cars. And whilst not every car has it, I would say 50% of the cars uh, that fly around London or wherever it is have a paddle gear change, um, if that's what they want. And, of course, that came through Formula One because uh, in the days that I was around, everything was gear changed with your hands and you come back with massive big blisters and, 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 and you know, the, the gear change would have worn through the glove. Whereas, David, you didn't have that because everything was all, um, you know, a brake and, and, and no clutch. And uh, so um, it has moved on. And I like to think that Formula One has been an inspiration to the car industry and has brought the people at large because we want to see some good coming out of Formula One that can be uh, interpreted and used in, in normal commercial life. Well, innovation is uh, a big part of of the well, it's the very lifeblood of uh, of Formula One. If you fail to innovate, then you basically, you know, you just follow and join a long line of other performers. Uh, another question here from Patrick Van Lameren, and he is uh, enjoying the podcast. Well done, uh, particularly you, apparently, EJ. Um, no, I'm not going to take offence on that, Patrick. Uh, he is uh, curious to know about Jos Verstappen. And I think that uh, he's asking about how good he was ultimately. And I think Jos was one of the the phenomenally fast racing drivers. But I think what we're seeing now with Max is all of the learnings of the difficulties Jos had and the things that then therefore didn't work out for him in his career. He's made good on that in his you know, the way he's he's developed Max as a driver and prepared him to arrive in Formula One. I remember Jos doing his first Formula One test in Estoril. I was there testing for Williams. He was doing a test in the Arrows and already on the first day, he was blindingly fast and he was scheduled to do two days in the car and we'd bump into each other in the bathroom in the, uh, before testing starts. And I was like, oh, Jos, you were brilliant yesterday. You, you presumably just need to show you've got consistency today. And he went watch the lap time I'm going to do this morning. Because <laughs> in the morning in Estoril, you got the cold air and that's when you had did your sort of glory runs to set fast lap times. And he went out and he had almighty crash uh, in the final corner. I remember the car got stuck between the barrier and he just went beyond what was capable at that time. He then obviously made his debut with uh, Benetton, unfortunately for him, alongside Schumacher, had a few podiums. But I think it all came a bit too early in terms of his fitness and and his preparation, and therefore it didn't work out. He came to me as well. I mean, he, I had first-hand experience with him. So, uh, yes, I do know Yoss, and um, Yoss was fiery, but and he's calmed down. But Max is fiery too, but he's he's got all, all, all you know, th- those feelings, he has them under control. 
I'd have to give just some credit to Max's mum because, let's be very clear, in my opinion, she was quicker than Yoss as, as a karting driver. And so when you have two unbelievably quick people and they make a baby and it's like horse racing, very often you can get lucky and you can have, you know, the, the child from that relationship turn out to be somebody like Max Verstappen. So we shouldn't be surprised when you have two people who have absolutely buried deep and strong in their DNA, the motor racing that those two have. Um, it's, let's not be too surprised about where Max got it from. I think it's so cute the way you go, they, they make a baby. <laughs> it's like it's like you go in the kitchen and sort of rustle up. The Even you kids. managed to do that. Come on. I did indeed, yeah. I, I, you know, it was... Uh, anyway. Let's move on. <laughs> um, so, yeah, Jos, I think, has used uh, all of his, his skills and talents uh, to, to help create the, the phenomenon that is Max. We've got another one here from Daniel Button, and it's actually for me. Uh, he's David, asking, can I not ask this question? Because I think this is perfect. Well done, Daniel. And he wants to know, when you left McLaren, did you talk with any other teams other than Red Bull? Or did you talk with any of the teams during your time at uh, McLaren? Well, you're probably not able to answer the latter, but the first part. Yeah, well, I did. I met with Jean Todd uh, in Paris in his apartment to talk about the potential to drive for Ferrari. And it, it, my recollection of the contract offered was basically uh, a number two contract, which uh, despite whatever anyone can now conclude about my career, at that time I still felt that uh, I wasn't going to sign anything other than equal opportunity. And so essentially... If I was running fourth and Michael was fifth, then I had to move over and all the way right up to, you know, if I was leading. And I just couldn't agree to signing to that. And and all credit to Ron and McLaren, the contract they offered me was always equal opportunity. And although there was a clause that said you had to accept the instructions of the team principal in whatever circumstance it might be, largely speaking, I was given a fair and equal opportunity to crack on and, and try and see how good I could um, develop my skills. Um, so that was the only time, the only team really I spoke to during my nine years at McLaren. And then at the end, when I knew I was leaving McLaren, we spoke to all of the teams. I say we, Martin Brundle was my contractual manager. And one of the teams that we actually had a meeting with was Jaguar. And I recall specifically, and Jaguar became Red Bull, if you recall, at the end of that 2004 season, Red Bull bought the team. But I recall saying to Martin, I would rather retire or become a test driver somewhere with the hope of coming back to Formula One than race under the structure that was Jaguar. I just didn't, you know, with the greatest respect to the people of Jaguar at that time, the management structure and the way they had to report to Ford and I think they had about four or five upgrades a year. It just didn't strike me as being a winning formula. And then all of that changed, of course, when Red Bull bought Jaguar, rebranded it. And that first year, 2005, it was essentially a Jaguar car painted Red Bull because obviously you, everything happens so late, then you're, you're just taking over the legacy. But we then started a process of re-energizing the great people that were there, uh, changing some of the people that, you know, they would be better suited going elsewhere. And then ultimately, of course, Red Bull have built themselves into a, a, a phenomenal uh, racing team. So I, I, I feel that I was part of that transition. 
But that answers the question, Daniel. Uh, I, I never really spoke to a lot of teams. I enjoyed the fact that I only drove for three teams, obviously the majority of my time at, at McLaren. Um, and maybe I'll flip that actually, EJ, to do you ever feel that you could have had a driver? And I think you might have touched on it with, was it Michael or was it Ayrton, where you offered them a percentage of Jordan and the and they considered it, it and then it slipped away. Ayrton. Okay, yeah, but so he was the only that. one that I would ever think about. But, but before I yeah, answer was that... Was he the I only just, one you would ever give a slice of your team to? Uh, I offered him 50%. But I'll come back to that in a second. Um, David, do you think when we're talking about the greats and, and, and we're talking, when you mentioned Prost earlier and then Senna and, and Mansell and, and Lewis and, of course, Max now, do you think in terms of legacy... The fact that each of us, you and me, both have had to encounter contracts or visiting a contract with a view to signing it, whereby you always had to move over for, for Michael Schumacher. I think that takes away a lot from his legacy. I really do take believe that, that um, it has a little stigma on it for me. And if I was to say, you know, Lewis or Michael Schumacher, sure, we all know how great Michael was and how quick he was, but I just I always disliked that little clause which said that he had to move out of the way. Yeah. No, I, I think I, I'm an old-fashioned sports person. Um, I remember Jacques Villeneuve once saying to me, he didn't think it was fair that, that he had to carry ballast uh, to make him the same weight as me because he'd been made smaller and he felt that was his advantage. And I remember saying, Jacques, surely you want to beat me because you're better rather than you beat me because you're smaller. <laughs> <laughs> but he He'd didn't love that. that I know what Jack. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. Which is why I think I often have been heard joking about the height of certain drivers, and I always just wanted fair and an open competition, and then find out how good or bad you are. So we've got Will Hay asks. He's keen to hear about the moment in our careers, anyone that humbled us the most. Um, and if Eddie specifically has been humbled at all. Yeah, that's a good one, actually. This guy, Will Hayes, probably gets gets a feel for your personality because you're a confident guy. You've got the gift of the gab. If you talk about somebody who actually puts you in your box, which I presume that is indirectly what the, the question is like, We've all said, in that, and we know he's been in the courts recently, but he's still alive, kicking and well, and I do believe he does listen to the podcast. And if we get a chance, we might have him on the podcast. And that is none other than Bernie. Um, when he wanted to put you down or humble you, I promise you, he could have a very nasty kick. And um, you just knew when he was about to to, to give you one. And um, we've talked about some of the things when he said um, to, to Frank about what he felt about Frank and what he felt about me and, and Ron and, and all of the characters. Um, Bernie had an ability, apart from the best visionary I've ever known in my entire life of, of living. Um, he knew how to place things where a race would work or whatever, but he also knew how to give it out. He's the one that I would say who's humbled me the most. Yeah, no, he, he yeah, I had a tremendous amount of respect uh, for Bernie. He definitely was the ringmaster, but very, very good with his time if you needed help. And I think you would confirm that. You know, I reached out to him a couple of times, times in my career and he was always, you could get in his bus, quite intimidating to go in his bus. But if, you know, you said you needed something, you got time and he would listen and he would give an opinion or he would set the wheels in motion to support you. So I take take my hat off to him for that. Um, 
EJ, I think uh, given given the fact that we've we're almost forty minutes. You want the Ayrton story again or not? Oh, okay. Give us the Ayrton story, and then I was going to release our dear listeners to whatever else they're doing today. Because uh, well, I leave them with this thought because. With the nostalgia and the people, you know, recollections about various people and um, you owe him a lot because I think indirectly it's as a result of his accident, he has helped you to create the career that you had. And I did notice that you taught great drivers who had double digit wins. It hasn't gone past my mind that I know that you've had double digit wins and you would have had an awful lot more um, if you'd have been allowed to have them. Isn't that true? But anyway, back to Ert. Um, I thought you were going to see if I'd driven for Jordan. Nah. Listen, I, in 1982, it, I've said it a couple of times, um, I saw this kid and I gave him a drive. And then with Dickie Bennett's the following year, um, we formed this team and went to Macau and, and Ayrton won it and he went straight to Tolman. I, I never lost touch with him. And he was that kind of person. He always wanted to know who was done, where, what's happening, the children, where are they going, and da, 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 da. And I, I suddenly realised as a business guy... Because fundamentally, that was in my mind. I felt, how am I going to win Grand Prix? How am I going to, how am I going to better the team generally? Do I need 100% of this team? Because we set the targets out, Marie and I, that we shouldn't have partners because that only causes me problems or headaches or whatever. So whatever we can do on our own is the best we can do. Um, however, Ayrton was um, a different example. And I went to him. He was very clearly unhappy about some of the things that were happening uh, in some of the teams. And he, eventually I said to him, look, why don't you consider owning and running a team? Take over from me because this would be a magic situation. At that stage, he had just brought me Barrichello, so he had huge influence in Brazil and uh, the ability of bringing cash. So I offered him free of charge 50% of Jordan Grand Prix, which at the time was quite a significant amount of money, really, in real terms, but on condition that he would drive for the next two years and he would bring enough money to fund it for that time. So um, we were in that particular discussion in, in 94 at the beginning of the season and uh, we, we, we know what happened um, at Williams. Um, extraordinary sad for all sorts of things. Um, would it have ever happened? Um, who's to know? We don't know. It's just out there. It, it was very close in terms of agreeing figures, agreeing structure, who do what, would I run on the team until he was ready to do so and um, so that's Ayrton and you know these things happen and pass and uh, it was an extremely sad what happened that particular weekend in um, in Imola 94 It was indeed and um, I, I cherish uh, on the day that he passed um, I received a fax as it was in those days um, from the team uh, and signed with a little message from Ayrton, because I was racing at Silverstone and the bank holiday Monday race in Formula 3000. And uh, the words were very simply, you know, very best to you for the weekend. And then signed by Ayrton. And I have that in my museum up in Scotland. And uh, I also have uh, a steering wheel, which uh, he raced with for McLaren and won his last Grand Prix for McLaren. I've got that wow. in my collection, which you can imagine. That, yeah, that's, cherish that. Uh, that, that uh, took quite a bit of uh, financial uh, investment to acquire. But um, it's, you know, for me, a, a great reminder 
of what of who was a, a phenomenal human being and an incredible racing driver. Yeah, yeah. And I think EJ, with that in mind, it's a good point for us to wrap this particular episode. Thank you very much for listening to Formula Success, and we will be back next week. And I don't know when I'll be in the same room as Eddie, but um, hopefully never. But if we are back in the same room again, EJ, Christmas take care until then. coming up, DC. We've got to look forward to that. So okay. cheers, everybody. We love being part of this program. Great. Keep listening. See you. Bye.